listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Emma Atkinson and Matt Meyer. On September 16th, 2022, 22-year-old Masa Amini died. Three days earlier, she was arrested by Iran's so-called morality police for not wearing her hijab, a traditional Muslim face covering, in accordance with the regime's standards. Police claimed she had a heart attack, collapsed to the floor of a station, cracked her head, and fell into a coma. Women detained alongside Amini and other eyewitnesses, however, paint a different picture. They say she was badly beaten and, after her medical records were leaked, independent observers insist she died of severe trauma, cerebral hemorrhage, and stroke. Her death and the subsequent findings have led to massive protests across the country already deeply divided since the revolution of 1979 brought about the Islamic Republic of Iran. While Islamic traditionalists with a long and brutal track record of repressing women work to maintain the status quo, much of Iran's citizenry, with growing international support, has risen up in dissent. More than 12,000 people have been arrested, and state-sponsored media reports 41 people have died, although independent sources place that figure as high as 240. The regime has shut down cell phone signals and throttled internet access in a response similar to the protests in 2019 where citizens took to the streets over a 200% spike in fuel prices. As many as 1,500 people died during those protests and left the country even more angry, divided, and repressed. It's a particularly troublesome time for women in the country, so much so that the Iranian-American women we reached out to, both inside the DU community and beyond, were unwilling or unable to discuss the situation, with several citing the current political climate and potential dangers for family members still in Iran. In this podcast, we'll discuss the situation in Iran with Nader Hashmi, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at DU. But first, we'll chat with someone who has firsthand experience in Iranian protests. I am Reza Mehrain, a PhD student in international studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, University of Denver. I have a background in public policy and economics, and today I am extremely proud to call myself an Iranian student and political activist. I have been a student and political activist in Iran since 2013, and I can tell you that life for Iranian activists of all sorts is a continuous struggle rife with risks of being arrested, being detained, being expelled from university, and fired from your workplace. The least that one could expect as a known activist in Iran is to be denied work-related promotion indefinitely, or as a student being denied acceptance into top-ranked grad schools in Iran, if any grad schools at all. This being something that is happening on a daily basis with most of the individuals that are deciding uh, to continue and pursue their educations abroad and in different countries. The death of Masa Amini has sparked what some are calling a feminist revolution in a country that's been under strict Islamic rule since 1979. How long has this reckoning been brewing? Uh, so the first feminist movement in Iran actually happened one month after the 1979 revolution, uh, being the March 8th of 1979, the International Women's Day. Women took to the streets protesting the ongoing obligatory hijab discussion and demanding their basic rights and freedom. Uh, the Islamic Republic, of course, at the time took a step back only to take 10 steps forward later. The protests continued in so many different ways throughout the years that were less apparent to the international community until the millennials and the Gen Zs entered the society, making these protests more obvious and more, no more noticeable. In 2017, one of the most significant protests in post-revolutionary Iran happened when a video went viral of a 32-year-young Iranian woman who took her hijab off in the middle of the street and put it on the top of a stick. Uh, subsequently, unfortunately, she was arrested, and this triggered the next round of the mass protests in the country, with people from 105 different cities 
coming to the streets, but this time uh, it was much different than the previous times that we actually witnessed protests in Iran. With the chants and slogans directly targeting the core ideology of the Islamic Republic and the Supreme Leader himself, calling him out as a dictator and opposing the theocracy that the Islamic Republic had held in place. From 2017 onwards, the chants were upgraded into demanding fundamental changes in the structure of the regime and essentially a regime change. And of course, we are here today after much occurrences and after the brutal death of Masa Amini in 2022, when people are calling for a revolution, which is so, the so-called women's revolution of Iran or the feminist revolution. For those living in the United States, the concept of morality police might seem strange. Established in 2005, this religious police force is tasked with arresting those who violate the Islamic dress code. These interactions almost always target women. In 2014, these guidance patrols took 220,000 women to police stations and asked them to sign statements promising to wear their hijabs. 19,000 were given hair covering notices, and 9,000 were detained. In the same year, 3.6 million warnings and citations were issued for improper dress. In 2015, more than 40,000 women were stopped while driving in Iran for improper dress. As a result, their cars were impounded. These patrols routinely harass members of the LGBTQ community, with particular attention paid to trans women. As Maharin explains, these patrols target women for numerous reasons. I, like many Iranians, have had talks and confrontations uh, with the morality police on and off in so many different occasions. One thing that I can tell you for sure is that these people are not normal individuals. They are not psychologically stable, and there are no clear guidelines as to what they should and should not be doing in the country. In brief, the morality police is a segment of the police forces that is being paid to wander around in the streets with vans and motorbikes, to harass the people for their clothing, their hairstyle, for walking their pets, and etc., among many different things. And essentially their role is to enforce the social ideology of the Islamic Republic in the Iranian society. And one thing that is definitely for sure is that uh, the more good-looking you are, unfortunately, the, the higher the risk of you being picked on by the morality police in Iran. Like many other places worldwide, the avenues of protests have changed and evolved, especially as younger Iranians have joined the fray. Through social media platforms and WhatsApp, a popular messaging service, news of Masa Amini's death and numerous public protests have made their way around the globe. In response, the government has throttled internet access and sent messages of their own. So the women and men in Iran are resisting the force of the Islamic Republic and essentially battling oppressive authoritarianism in two different fields. One is online and through different social medias, and the second is on the street. When we're talking about the social media, people are trying to share the stories, share the news, share the updates, uh, share the actual footage of, of, of people recording what's going on in the protests in the front lines in the streets with themselves and with the international community in order to uh, share their courageous resilience with each other, uh, to, to motivate each other, to, to not back off and to uh, uh, hold the grounds, and with the international community to, to try to gain their support and let them know of what is going on inside Iran and, and the human rights that are being violated inside the country. And this has definitely paid off during the past uh, couple of weeks with, uh, as we are witnessing today, with many influencers sharing our message globally with their millions of followers through different Instagram posts, Twitter posts, and it's, it's, it's been gaining traction, uh, which is something that we are, we are very proud of and we definitely appreciate. And obviously on the streets. So about the streets, uh, I, I have uh, had the chance to witness and participate in the protests that have been happening in Iran in 2017 and 2019. 
And one thing that I can tell you for sure is that these protests are fundamentally different from what I actually saw in 2017 and 2019. The people, similar to the past protests, are empty-handed. And the government, in some occasions, it has been witnessed that uh, they have come to the streets with military uh, equipment and military ammunitions, and they have been targeting people directly at this time. Until right now, the, the, the amount of, uh, the number of people that have been dead is, is in the three digits, close to 200 people. One thing that is extraordinary uh, in these protests compared to the past protests that we have witnessed is, is the unity among the people. So say if, if people are protesting in the streets and the people and the protesters have been cornered uh, in, in a residential area, we do witness that men and women, the owners of the residential properties are opening their homes to these protesters, taking them in uh, so that they could, would not be arrested by the police, which is something that is, is extraordinary and is something that we haven't witnessed during the past decades and in the past protests, uh, showing the unity of the people of Iran against the Islamic Republic. And as for the response of the Islamic Republic to these uprisings and mass protests, well, the Islamic Republic, per usual, is calling the protesters out and labeling them as either foreign individuals or Iranians who have been bought or misled by foreigners, which is a page of their playbook in response to all protests. And quite frankly, their small group of supporters are also having a very difficult time belie believing this narrative this time around. And we are witnessing that many of the supporters of the Islamic Republic, the, many of the supporters of the regime, of people and celebrities that are speaking out against the regime's crackdown on the protesters on their social media. We actually take a close look to what the Islamic Republic is saying about the people being bought and the people being misled by foreign governments after four decades of them ruling uh, in the country and implementing this harsh theocracy, we will only notice one thing, and that's the lack of sufficient governance by the Islamic Republic that with which uh, they have uh, failed so much and they have messed up so much that the protesters are, are currently on the streets, uh, the, the, as they would call them, like foreign protesters or, or people who have been bought by the foreigners after four decades of them ruling over the country. So yeah, this, this is generally how the Islamic Republic is choosing to respond uh, to these protests. For a broader look at the political powers at play, we bring in Nader Hashmi, the director for the Center of Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. He's a respected and highly valued scholar, teacher, and colleague at the university and has made numerous contributions to the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. As the founding director of the Center for Middle East Studies, he has undertaken an expansion of the center's research agenda and contributes to the public's understanding of politics and societies of the Middle East. A large portion of this discussion centers around Hashmi's latest essay on the website of Democracy for the Arab World Now, a nonprofit organization that promotes democracy, the rule of law, and human rights for all the peoples of the Middle East and North Africa. The essay is titled, The Talibanization of Iran Has Sparked a Revolutionary Feminist Backlash. A link to his work is available in the show notes. The current powers at political play in Iran are, first and foremost, the regime itself, you know, in power for over 40 years, deeply authoritarian, deeply repressive, one of the worst human rights violators in the region, if not globally. And then, of course, there's the citizens that are protesting right now in Iran. They have no known leadership. They have no um, international backing except the force of global public opinion that's sympathetic to the protests and sympathetic to the aspirations of the protesters, particularly the women who are demanding, you know, freedom, democracy, human rights. And those are the, those are the, those are the two, you know, groups that are in, in contestation right now for the future of Iran. 
The religious fundamentalism at play in Iran is not divorced from other authoritarian regimes around the world. Hashmi says the morality police central to the current protests are only one tool used by the government to target women. So the Islamic Republic of Iran is a deeply ideological regime. It justifies itself uh, based on a particular politicized and conservative interpretation of Islam. And because it's an ideological regime, uh, like other ideological authoritarian systems, the regime and the state apparatus believes that they have a moral obligation to uphold a particular standard of conduct in society. And so they've entrusted these uh, security forces to observe citizens' behavior, which is, let's be clear, it's overwhelmingly women's behavior. Men's behavior doesn't really factor into monitoring and control. And they seek to punish, arrest, lecture, and educate, and educate in quotes here, because one of the things that happens often if you're arrested by the morality police, you're uh, instructed on why you're arrested, and often for women it's because they haven't been wearing the veil or the hijab properly, and then they are sometimes subjected to mandatory educational classes that are not that different from what we would see in other authoritarian regimes. I mean, I'm reminded of the parallel of you know, the former Soviet Union or the Communist Party in China right now. If you sort of dissent from the official narrative, you will be re-educated in the mindset of the ruling regime's ideology. So this is fundamentally what this, you know, morality police, that what their job has been about. They, they've, they've, they've been in, in existence for roughly the length of the uh, post-revolutionary regime, roughly 40 years. And their enforcement of public morality you know, has ebbed and flowed over time, often overlapping with which government is in power in Iran. Reformist governments have asked the morality police to be less intrusive in implementing the existing state laws with respect to public morality, but hardline regimes like the one that is in power right now in terms of the presidency and the, the parliament are very opinionated on this issue and have increased the level of citizens' surveillance and crackdown, which directly has led to these protests. Because if you're following internal Iranian politics, there was a election, and I say election in quotes because it was a rigged election, but the former reformist president left office and a much hardline president, actually quite a notorious figure who has a lot of blood on his hands, he's a certifiable war criminal, came into office last summer pledging to uphold uh, public morality and particularly the way that women are dressing. So it's uh, as a direct result of that stricter enforcement that led to the arrest of this 22-year-old woman, Massa Amini, who was then killed in police custody that sparked these protests. So that's broadly what, what the context is. You touched on this a little bit, but in Democracy for the Arab World Now, you penned an essay highlighting what sociologist Azadeh Kayan calls the talibization of political power under President Ibrahim Rasi and how that has sparked a feminist backlash. You mentioned that controlling women's bodies is a pillar of the Islamic Republic since its inception. How long has a reckoning on this been brewing? It's been brewing for a long time, and it's a direct result of, as I argue in the piece, roughly for the last at least five years, if not longer, an uptake in the attempt to regulate women's lives, to strictly limit their public presence in society. So one of the examples that I cite in the essay 
is the Isfahan Philharmonic Orchestra. Isfahan is one of the biggest cities in Iran. They have an orchestra. And a few years ago, all of a sudden, this mixed orchestra of men and women were not allowed to perform together because local authorities said that women can no longer perform in public. And this was somewhat of a shock because th this was never a problem before. And so it became a problem a few years ago as a direct result of Iranian hardliners trying to control society by upholding this particular aspect of their political ideology, the presence of women in public, how they should perform, and what they can do and can't do. And so one of the obsessions that Iranian hardliners have with respect, with respect to the public presence of women is preventing them from performing musically, singing, or dancing. They view those things from their ideological hawkish perspective as sexually provocative and undermining public morality. And so there has been an attempt to you know, crack down on those types of public displays of, of women in public spaces. But of course, women have been fighting back, and we can see that right now on the streets of Tehran. A handful of public incidences beyond the death of Masa Amini has sparked discourse, both political and public. The general consensus at the peak of Iranian government, however, remains the same. Yeah, well, now there's interestingly, there has been a public debate in Iran among conservative hardliners over this particular attempt to regulate women's lives. There has been some actually dissenting voices who are saying, look, this is just uh, making things worse. It's leading to irreligiosity, people leaving religion. It's leading to societal backlash. And so there has been this attempt to try and make sense of where this policy is leading and, and, and its effects on political stability. But the people in power in Iran, starting from the office of the supreme leader, who is the most powerful figure in the Iranian political system and all of the different institutions of the state, they are very much committed to this form of regulation of, of, of women's bodies and presence in public space. There's actually an incident that happened about 10 days ago here in the United States when the Iranian president, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, came to the United Nations for the annual meeting of the heads of state. And he was supposed to give an interview. He had a scheduled interview with the veteran journalist who's actually Iranian-American, very famous on CNN and now PBS, Christian Amanpour. And they were supposed to have an interview. But at the last moment, the Iranian delegation informs Christian Amanpour that the interview can't take place unless Christian Amanpour wears a veil. Christian Amanpour, to her credit, says, absolutely, I'm not going to do that. She said, in the past, I've interviewed Iranian officials here in the United States. That's never been a demand. But this tells you something, that not only do these conservative hardliners want to re regulate how women are going to appear in public in Iran, they want to do so in the United States as well, to the extent that they have influence. So it's, it's a deep part of the identity of these conservative hardliners. And the reason why they're so obsessed with this is because you know, political Islamist identity formation, both in Iran and across the Islamic world, is constructed and shaped in relationship to the West. The West is the big adversary, so the perception from the part of these Islamic, or I should say Islam, Islamist political activists, is that because the West is the historic rival, colonial, and imperial entity that has imposed themselves on the Islamic world, and because these, these political Islamists define their identity in relationship to the West, and they view the West and Western women as being dressing quite loosely, dressing quite provocatively, they then construct an identity for the ideal Islamist or Muslim citizen as the direct opposite or in rejection of what they perceive to be the West doing. So if Western women are perceived to be dressing loosely and provocatively, our women will dress conservatively. And this is a, you know, almost for them a non-negotiable aspect 
of their political identity, which is why they're so resistant compromising on this issue. Because if they compromise, then it raises the question, well, then what really do they stand for? What is their, what is their raison d'etre? What, what, what values do they claim to uphold? So that's the dynamic that explains the rigidity of the belief on this particular issue with respect to the role of women in public places. Both international response to the death of Masa Amini and the protests in the street of Iran are growing, something Hashmi likens to past controversies involving the Islamic government. With enough international pressure, Iran will change policy, even if only for a short while. International outcry matters because it's a source of solidarity and support to the women on the streets in Iran. It also then forces the Islamic Republic to sort of make a calculation in terms of how far do they want to go with this hardline interpretation of Islam, because now it's starting to affect its international relationships. So I was just reading a moment ago that Iran's very heroic and courageous Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Shirin Ibadi, who's a human rights lawyer and living in exile, has asked for the international community to pull their ambassadors out of Iran over what's happened over the last few weeks. So that's going to force the Islamic Republic then to make a calculation. If you follow the history of the Islamic Republic of Iran, this is a regime that has survived 43 years, not by accident. And what I mean by that is they know when to compromise in order to preserve the longevity of their political system. So the one parallel that immediately comes to mind here is what happened roughly 30 years ago when the leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran at the time issued a death threat against the writer Salman Rushdie. It created a huge international crisis and a huge problem for Iran. European ambassadors were pulled out. Iran's relationship with the world, particularly the West, was deeply threatened. And so as because of that international reaction, the regime was then forced to make a compromise by effectively pledging to the European Union that while we won't rescind the death sentence, we won't send agents to, to, to carry out the death, the death threat. And so as, as a reassurance to, 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 to the West and to Salman Rushdie that, look, we'll make a compromise in order that our international economic and political relationships won't be threatened. So that's sort of a parallel here. So I suspect if international outcry, attention, criticism of Iran, if, when, if Western countries start to pull their ambassadors out of Iran, if trade relationships start to get affected, then this is a regime that fundamentally, when it has to make a choice between its ideology and its national interests, will always choose its national interest because it's a regime that wants to continue living. It, and they're, they're not interested in you know, self-suicide. The battle for women's rights in Iran has been ongoing for decades, and the memory of Masa Amini will play an important role. Hashmi says she'll join a long list of women who have fought and continue fighting against a government actively stripping them of their rights. Her name will go down in history as synonymous with the struggle for women's rights, for the struggle for democracy. You know, now there's all these photos, artwork, songs that are being produced within the last week remembering her and inspiring, you know, civil society in Iran to continue to resist against this repressive regime. So I think that's how she will be remembered in the future. I mean, and I would just add, and I say this in my, my essay, that unbeknownst to many people in the West, the struggle for human rights and democracy in Iran has been led by many courageous women. I mentioned a moment ago the the name is Shirin Ibadi, who is a human rights lawyer and won the Nobel Peace Prize for her heroism. But there are many other women, Nasrine Setudeh, Nargisa Mohammadi, Sepide Olyan, many, many women who are either have spent time in jail, or have been forced into exile, and who've been active in you know, the struggle for human rights and democracy in Iran. So this is very much, I think, a positive development because when you have this type of mobilization from basically one half of your society, it makes it very difficult for a regime 
to you know, ignore those demands and, and try to repress effectively half of the population. I mean, one of the interesting things that people don't know about is despite the repressive apparatus of the Islamic Republic, because it was a revolutionary regime after the revolution, it invested heavily in literacy, female literacy. And by the year 2001, 60% of the university students in Iran uh, were women. And so you have a highly educated class of women who are not going to be willing to live as second-class citizens and tell some you know, conservative cleric or listen to some conservative cleric who tells them how they're supposed to dress and not dress. So they're going to fight back. They're going to mobilize. There's been many smaller campaigns of women's rights activists mobilizing for their rights. They get crushed, but they come back again. So this is very much part of the, the broader backstory of the struggle for human rights and democracy in Iran, the role that women have played in this, in this struggle. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor, and James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Matt Meyer, and this has been Radio Ed. <laughs>